0: This is Tending Seeds, and I'm your host, Sarah, talking to you about homesteading, gardening, and herbalism. Hi friends, spring is finally starting to show up here, and I am so excited. I say that even though we just got a foot of snow earlier this week. The upside is that we're going to be above freezing for the next few days, so hopefully that snow will melt off as quickly as it appeared, because I am really over it and ready for spring. Mike and I are getting ready to build a temporary greenhouse here, and then we'll be hitting the ground running to get seeds started and just all sorts of things going on. And honestly, it's not a moment too soon either, because I just found out last week that I got accepted to vend at a local farmer's market here, and opening day for that market is basically a month away. So it's time to get some herbal products ready for that. Fortunately, I have already been hard at work brewing up lots of spring herbal goodness here. The Fox and Elder shop has some fun new items in it, like our good as gold herbal body oil and our nettle and seaweed seasoning salt, which I love to put on everything from omelets to popcorn. Honestly, everything is good with it. And it has a nice like mineral punch too, which is great this time of year. We're also going to be running a 10% off sale to welcome in the season. So you can just use the code spring10 at checkout. I'll have that code in the show notes too. If you're not sure how to write everything out, it's all just one word. Today for our interview, I'm super excited to welcome Angela Ferraro Fanning to the podcast. She is a self-taught first-generation farmer who runs Axe and Root Homestead, a six-acre farm in central New Jersey. She grows and preserves her own homegrown produce for her family and runs a farm bustling with Clydesdales, geese and ducks for eggs, an apiary with 10 beehives, sheep, and a small orchard. She shares her love for self-sufficient living with others through social media as Axon Root Homestead, her books, online homesteading classes, published articles, and public speaking. She is also the co-host of the Homestead Education podcast and the author of the Little Homesteader Children's Book Series. Today she joins us to talk about her newest book, The Sustainable Homestead: Create a Thriving Permaculture Ecosystem with Your Garden, Animals, and Land. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Angela. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. As a fellow podcaster and homesteader, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Um, Thanks for being here today.
1: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks. And so I love to have people, you know, we introduced you at the top there with a little intro, but I also love to get people's perspectives and have them talk in their own words. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself
1: from your perspective? Sure. So, um, for the most part, up until just a few months ago, I was a completely self-taught permaculture homesteader. So really, I, I don't come from a farming background. I have no family members that are into homesteading. It was just a matter of me sort of organically finding my way there after I had my first child and wanting to put my love of of gardening on steroids and then being like, we, we should get ducks and it snowballs and it becomes addictive, right? As most homesteaders know. And as soon as you start being self-sufficient in one facet of your life, you want to try other areas of your life. And then it's just become very empowering. And um, I started writing about it and sharing my journey originally on uh, Instagram and it, it, it never, I'm not a career social media person. For me, it's just sharing and trying to help show what's worked for me or talk about what might work for someone else. And I think that there's just such a great supportive community out there. And I started writing articles and then books. And now here I am.
0: Awesome. And you really have built such a wonderful Instagram community over at Axe Root Homestead. I love it. I love your posts. And I can definitely relate to the self-sufficiency my partner and I talk about it all the time. Or the minute we kind of learn about something our next step is how can we do this ourselves how can we make every piece of this ourselves so from you know he made like his own sawmill and we're just constantly like exploring so and you're right it is absolutely addictive and that's kind of one of the things i wanted to jump into is that you know because you write about permaculture and so i I think it can sound very overwhelming to people because you do have so much going on you know you're growing your own produce uh producing you know eggs and honey you have sheep and orchard And that can probably sound like a lot, but at the same time, those of us who are in like the permaculture side of things, we can see how those all can connect and like influence one another. So can you talk about maybe how those endeavors connect to one another? And can it can they actually make life easier for you running the farm, as opposed to if you were only focused on like one thing, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I love the way you phrased that question. Because a lot of people when I when I say what I'm about to say, they think that I'm absolutely a a nut job. And I must be like, (laughs) this completely hands off and just um, despondent homesteader. But no, what the idea of creating a homestead ecosystem, a permaculture farm, is that everything is kind of helping every, everything or everybody else out. And so when you have this sort of situation where sheep and horses, for example, are co-grazing, they're helping to reduce each, other, each other's parasites. The way that they do that, just for anybody who doesn't know, is a lot of parasites tend to be host-specific. And so if a horse ingests a parasite that belongs to a sheep, That's not its host. That's a dead end host. And that means that parasite is going to die off, right? Because it's not in its ideal space. And the same goes for the sheep ingesting the horse parasite. And so now we have a situation where we're sort of starting to break and reduce that life cycle. Now, what all they're doing is grazing. They're in a rotational circuit. My job is simply to grow the cover crops that I allow them to forage on and divide the pasture. And I don't say that like, oh, that's all because obviously that takes planning and effort. (laughs) But with that in mind my dewormers are going down, the amount that I have to deworm if at all, and my animals are healthier. And, you know, you start having this increase in soil fertility. And so now your cover crops are starting to grow better. And so really, by sort of working within the confines of Mother Nature's design, you know, how things were intended to function, a lot of things start to just become hands-off by Nature And it it doesn't mean you're being irresponsible or complacent in any way. Really what we're doing is we're just sort of um, creating a homestead environment that works in mimicry of nature. So that means every animal we bring in fits the puzzle, right? I don't bring something in that's going to contribute to overgrazing. If I already have an animal that eats forage X, I don't necessarily need another animal that eats forage X. I need something that eats forage Y, right? Otherwise, there's more mowing. Otherwise, there's going to be some overgrowth. My forage is going to be off. So really, it's about research. And I think that that's where it tends to be a little overwhelming for folks is there is a learning curve. We do need to understand how to make this process work for us. It isn't something that happens by accident. It's intentional. But at the same time, it's, it's just sort of how nature intended it to be. I hope that that answers your question and that wasn't too long-winded. It
0: does. No. And we're all about long-winded. I like to get out of the (laughs) way and and let my guests talk. Uh, They get to hear me enough on solo episodes. so. (laughs) (laughs) And I love what you shared there about how it it is getting easier for things. And also, uh, one of the things I want to circle back to is you talked about deworming and how now you're having to do that less often. And so that means from a sustainability standpoint, now you're having to bring outside inputs in, hopefully at a lower rate. Have you seen that, you know, elsewhere on your homestead? I know you're managing like six acres there, you know, cover cropping, everything else. What kind of inputs have you seen a reduction in over time as you have built up like that soil fertility, for instance?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So we'll stick with soil fertility. Um, I no longer use synthetic or organic fertilizers. And I've learned a lot from from the research I've done now, the classes that I've I've taken just recently here to sort of firm up my knowledge base. Um, using synthetic fertilizers in any form is a great way to feed your plants, but it doesn't feed the soil. And you what you end up doing is you break down this the isa, the big web, right? The soil web that we, we can't see with the naked eye. It's happening when the root systems. And that is one of the biggest contributors to decrease in soil fertility is when you stop feeding the soil and you solely focus on feeding the plants, all that beneficial bacteria, the protozoa, the nematodes, they they don't have a job anymore and they begin to die off. Their job is to search for food on behalf of the plant. And so that is a, a major degradation to soil quality. And so in getting rid of those synthetic inputs, even if it's like a liquid kelp fertilizer and bringing in compost and cover crops and thinking about different uh, manure from different types of animal species. My soil is drastically improving um, since I've started doing that. The other thing is with regards to forage. You know, when I first got horses, I, I didn't know any better. I thought I'll just sow Kentucky bluegrass. And there's nothing wrong with Kentucky bluegrass. It's just that all it really does is hold your soil in place while feeding your animals, right? It prevents erosion. But I want something to, to feed my soil. And so building off of what we talked about before, I learned about cover crops. And so the thing about cover crops is they're going to meet the nutritional requirements of the animals while feeding my soil. And so that's another way now that my land has gotten a lot healthier and um, much more resilient to weather and, and natural disaster. You know, here in New Jersey, we have a lot of flooding. We've got hurricanes um, and we've got blizzards. So my, my land is, 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 strengthened, but then also in just sort of harnessing some of the native plants here and reading about, okay, yeah, the, here's some native grasses, you know, in this, in this lowland area, can I feed this to my animals? Or is it too full of sugar and finding, yes, I can feed it to my animals. And now I'm supplementing some of the forage that I would otherwise either be growing or bringing in with hay. Right. And so knowledge is power long story short, and by learning how to harness what you already have in terms of space, native growth, if you can replace the forage, that you're already going to be feeding to your animals anyway with something more nutrient dense for the animals and the soil. I mean, why not do that? Definitely. It just makes sense, doesn't it?
0: Right, It makes sense to me for sure. Yeah, I'd love to kind of walk through, you know, specifically maybe like one particular animal. Um, I don't think we've had anyone on the show with sheep, actually. So maybe talking about what does that look like in terms of you know land use you mentioned rotational grazing and and forage and cover crops for them so like what specifically are you growing like how many sheep do you have how much area do they take up like what are you growing for them and then you know what kind of outside inputs do you still bring in or is it all coming from from your land at this point
1: so i do bring in hay okay I I honestly would love to say that I would be able to remove hay forage entirely, but with the appet- appetite of the two Clydesdales <laughs> and the acres, I don't know if that's ever going to be possible. Because if right. they're you know in the high season in the summertime, they're grazing it right. They're rotationally grazing it, so I don't have a feel that I can let just sort of go and hay. I I would need to feed them hay to do that. So it'd be hay in one of the seasons. <laughs> But with the sheep, okay, so I brought sheep in because I learned about the parasite reduction we talked about with horses. And so that was a major um, uh, attractive benefit to me. You know, I thought, okay, what else can these sheep do? I decided on Romney sheep and a Shetland sheep. And I I wanted one of those two breeds, and I ended up with four Romney and one Shetland, just by the way that they were for sale in the area, and I I was able to acquire them. The reason I chose these particular breeds is because they do very well on pasture. So they do not require a lot of excess nutrients. If you have something like a meat sheep, you're going to want to really um, make sure you're feeding adequate feed rations, right? You're going to want to make sure that you're giving them enough calories. They're going to need more calories. They're growing larger. They're producing meat. Also, if you're having some sort of a, a milk sheep, their requirements are going to be different. I want sheep solely for rotational grazing with my horses. And the thing that I had to do was really look at my landscape and say, okay, you know, these things sound really good for sheep but does the forage that grows here naturally plus my cover crops make sense for them so we hear about goats eat everything but <laughs> when i've talked to goat owners they say no that's actually not true they won't eat grass what they really like to eat is fibrous growth weeds that have more of a dense stem um you know like barberry woody tissueed plants well In the areas that I'm interested in grazing animals, I don't have that. I have grasses. So what's gonna eat grasses of a small host stock species? It's gonna be sheep. So I now have not only a compatible animal species with my landscape, I've got something that can help reduce parasites in my horses. Um, It's gonna work well in a rotational grazing circuit and not need a whole lot excess um, nutrients from me. And I can get wool, done. So here on the homestead, we are vegetarian. And uh, it's not a soapbox thing at all. I just have raised enough animals. At this point, it's like I don't want to process them. And if I don't process them, I shouldn't eat them. And that's all that is. So uh, I'm not worried about milk sheep or I'm not worried about meat sheep. And so that's what the sheep do for us here. When it comes to the actual feeding of the sheep, the cover crops that I plant vary by season. In the cold season, I'm doing right now bursting clover, annual ryegrass forage turnip. And then I've got, um, hang on, I just did this. Rye gra- oh, triticale. And the reason I have those four different things is because one, they all offer a select nutrient panel, just like any fruit and vegetable would for a human diet, right? They mm-hmm. all have slightly different nutrients. Right. But the other thing is they all perform different functions. Some are going to be better for um, decompaction of soil, like the turnip. Like if you think about a turnip growing in the soil, As it expands, it has to break up the soil around it. So here in New Jersey, we have a lot of compacted clay. That's a great choice. Now, do the animals love the taste of the turnip greens? No, (laughs) they leave it for last, but they will eat it. Yep.
0: And you've tilled your soil then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) But they love that annual ryegrass. They love that triticale and they love the clover. The clover attracts beneficial insects and acts as a weed suppressor. You know, the other ones, they offer different qualities like helping topsoil, They work as great natural mulchers and when they get tromped down through the um, just the animals walking around while they graze. So when you put the sheep in with the horses, followed by the ducks and the geese, all of a sudden we have this massive array of inputs to the soil and outputs. And even if they're not eating it, if they're just trampling it by walking on it, all of that nutrients from the plant is still getting returned to the earth. And so it creates so like a, a very nice closed looped system.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I love that going back to even just the initial starting point for even deciding to have sheep in the first place, it was you evaluating, looking at your land already, what was already growing there, and figuring out, okay, what's the best match for this, rather than just picking something at random that you wanted to have there and then trying to force it into the existing ecosystem already. And I think that's something. It's so important when we look at homesteading that, and I'm kind of dealing with that right now. We just moved less than six months ago from Tennessee to Colorado. So figuring out like, okay, like what is this going to look like? It's a whole new climate for us, our medicinal herb farm, as well as just growing produce and, and livestock for us as well. And so it's definitely something to consider. It's like, why beat your head against the wall trying to force something into your ecosystem if it wasn't really supposed to be there in the first place?
1: Yeah, I think I don't, I, I'm not sure that falls necessarily into the regenerative agriculture realm. I think that tends to be a little bit more science and, and mm-hmm. um, soil building based. I think permaculture certainly encompasses some of that, sure. but it has a lot more to do with sort of mimicking the natural surroundings, right? Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. Why work harder? <laughs> if, if something doesn't want to grow there, don't force it to and i think we we come from a society of instant gratification as human beings we like to control things and so it's it's a mind shift to become a permaculture farmer is an acceptance of the of the limitations of your site right but those limitations in a way turn out to be solutions and what right. i mean by that is i have through
0: the strengths for your, for yeah, your but... site as well right you know
1: Yeah, like I have uh, one of of the downfalls of my homestead is uh, a portion of the property floods. And I'm not just talking about pooling water, rushing three feet of water. There's rescue boats at the intersection down the road, taking people out of their vehicles. It looks like oceanfront property and that absolutely annihilates any intention of a, a garden, It's taken down pasture fences. And I really, that stressed me out for so long because I'm one small being trying to work, not just physically, but also like mentally, trying to figure out my way. How am I going to get out of this? How are we going to figure out a way to fix this? When really the problem has to do with elevation, land erosion, has to do with the grading of all the landscapes around my farm. There's no way I can control it solely on my land. Right. So once I embraced the flooding, and thought, you know what I can do instead? I can build a riparian zone. I'm going to put in natural plantings that are going to help to not only absorb water when it rushes through and uh, reduce the effects, but I'm also going to create a filtration system. And that's going to be through a lot of grasses. Well, guess what? Now, when it's not flood season, I can graze my animals on that. I just increased my forage. Maybe I can grow weeping willows and um, I can sell willow whips for basket making for people, you know, like on Etsy or something like that. Now I've created a source of income. So it's finding a problem and being a creative problem solver and using it to your advantage, rather than just coming in with a bulldozer and thinking, well, I got to rip this down to studs and start brand new, right? So (laughs) there's some some freedom in that, but it's kind of a little scary to get to that point (laughs) because you have to let go.
0: Yeah, you have to let go of your preconceived idea of like what you were going to do on the land necessarily because yeah, it's everyone's idea. You know, your farm wouldn't work here. My farm wouldn't work where you are. It's It's got to be specific to where you are, your climate and so much. I mean, even just down the road from you, it could be completely different, a different yes. story. The, the next parcel of land over from us has entirely different trees, has aspens and stuff that we don't have here on our piece of land. And I wish we did, but at the same time, I need to embrace... Well, what do we have, you know, and, and work with that instead?
1: They, that is, yes, well said. And I have such a good example as well. Um, so one of the practices I follow is phenology. And that's the study of patterns in nature with regards to planting times, insects, animals, um, the moon. So like, for example, I don't plant onions until forsythia blooms, because mm-hmm. that's going to be a signal that it's warm enough. If I put the onions in the ground too early, they could rot. These are patterns and sort of phrases or lore that people have had to rely on for centuries before we had apps to tell us the weather (laughs) and seed packets to tell us when to sow our seeds. Well, I'm not at the point to plant onions yet because my forsythia bushes have not bloomed. But 10 minutes from here, theirs are open. And I find myself trying to justify like, Maybe it's not that different. Maybe I can go ahead and plant the onions. But you know what? If I really want to be a true patron of, of the phenology knowledge, and I know that it works for me, it's it's worked for me more often than not, I'm going to wait. I have to wait until the ones in my yard open because I am in a different microclimate than the right. people that are just a few neighborhoods over.
0: Right. And I like to think also that, you know, maybe the upside of that too is that for at least that specific task, you're getting a little bit longer to rest it's not time yet and so now you have that time that you can put into something else uh, whether it's rest whether it's planning you mentioned that instant gratification that we're so used to and just being in a rush of you know being like well I want to plant my onions now or I have time right now and it's like well this just isn't the time so maybe you're meant to be doing something else with that time instead and Mm kind of giving up that little bit of control which can definitely be difficult (laughs) yes for sure yeah, you mentioned with the flooding and the water and and redirection and you know we talk about swales a bunch in permaculture. I loved all of the illustrations in the book, but one that was one of the sections that actually really caught my eye was because normally I see swales just being talked in a very sort of like one size fits all general like you use swales, you redirect water, um but you really broke broke this down into different types of swales, uh bioswales such as like for pasture areas, chicken coops, and I thought that was really fascinating. Could we maybe deep dive into uh, the chicken coop bioswales, for instance, and like how those function on your farm?
1: Yeah. So um, one idea, uh, what we're referring to is in the book, I talk about how a great idea for installing a swale is to put one outside of your chicken coop or your chicken run, more the run. So let's think about maybe what that run fence would look like. And if you think about how if you have a slight grade, in your land, okay, so a small downhill slope, and it rains, even if there's a roof over that run, all of the output, the manure in that run is going to get wet. And where's it going to go? Well, it's going to soak into the soil, right? And if there's a grade, it's going to go downhill. Well, that's full of nutrients. Now, yeah, it's also full of pathogens, because it hasn't broken down yet. But it's also full of nutrients. So one way to harness those nutrients and get around the breaking down of the pathogens in a compost heap for you know X amount of time is to create a swale. A swale, essentially, if you've driven on the side of the highway, you've seen a swale ditch. It's a a, a ditch, for lack of a better word, and on you'll have a berm on one side. The berm is what makes it a swale because the berm is where we take essentially all of the dirt that we've excavated out of the ditch and we put it on the downhill side of of the slope. That way, when it rains or floods or whatever, water accumulates in the ditch that we've created and it's held there. And slowly, that water soaks into the berm. So rather than just pooling and running off and losing that water, we're holding it, we're slowing it down, and it slowly has time to collect into the berm. Here's the great thing about putting one right outside of a chicken run that is going to be nutrient filled water. If you plant plants in that berm, that little mound you've made right next to that slope, that, uh, that ditch, you're gonna soak all of those nutrients. It's like liquid compost, right? Right into the roots of those plants. You are going to have massive growth, giant amounts of nutrient uptake within the plants, and you don't have to wait the same amount of time that you would for it to break down. So harness it, make it work for you
0: i love that it's it seems like such common (laughs) sense and then you know just realizing like when i've seen swales it's always been these kind of like long meandering you know swales and berms across really large expanses of land where they're trying to redirect water from you know several acres and funneling it towards just like a garden for instance um so i then think you know considering this and, and focusing it in a more specific pivotal place of just like like you said you've got your coop, you've got maybe some fencing along those runs, like, why were you not redirecting the water right there specifically? And so I think, you know, you mentioned microclimates. I think of just these little like micro zones or micro projects as well all over the farm. And that, you know, you don't have to have a backhoe and a skid steer to go, you know, cover your entire, you know, acreage and swales But just start building small near what you have what you're already putting onto your land as well. Yes. Um, it's just such a great idea.
1: Yes, it is it is it really it permaculture farming is supposed to be approachable. Right. There's a farm that I absolutely love and idolize out of France. And um they got rid of their machinery because they just thought well one we want to utilize every square inch and so creating pathways for wide machinery eats up space. But number 2 we've I think in um, commercial agriculture, we've kind of thought of it as if we don't have machinery, we're not farmers, right? If we don't have massive seed spreaders or tillers or harvesting equipment, we're not real farmers. No, it's just a different kind of farming. That's all it is. And it is supposed to be. People have been doing it for centuries. people do it without tools in the rainforest. This permaculture has been in practice in different cultures all over the world for so long. And they might have nothing more than a stick To excavate with, you can absolutely do this with a shovel. I went out and I dug a seventy-five foot long swale with a shovel to help just absorb some of the water that was accumulating in uh, my um my sacrifice plot for my horses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just thinking about what you have and how to better harness the power of what you have to make it work for you.
0: Right, couldn't agree more, and I'm sure you probably have the biceps to show that you (laughs) got 75 foot, you know? Um, So there's all those other layered benefits, right? (laughs)
1: right. (laughs) I got to skip my gym workout that day. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who needs a gym membership when you farm, right? Right. Um, Yeah, that was something I kind of had to come to terms with as well. Being a medicinal herb farmer was realizing that to scale up to a certain point would mean entirely changing the way I farmed. It would mean investing in Machinery that I didn't want to have; it didn't fit with my own ethos for how I wanted to be farming, and so I had to kind of ramp back and adjust back my business plan. But that's that's for another
1: day. So yeah, but it, that's great that you made that realization about what suits your, I guess, brand your your brand for your farm, quote unquote, right? Yeah, that's good.
0: Yeah, completely. And and I didn't want to have to make that that leap to buying all that equipment. It just didn't seem. Yeah, not the lifestyle I wanted, which I mean, yeah. and other people do it. And that's fine. No judgment. Um, it just wasn't for me. So and kind of speaking about that, you know, everyone's got that different perspective. And um, but one of my favorite sections in your book was um, the chapter towards the end, the role of the homesteader. And this is something I feel like I just haven't really seen talked about very often. Um, why was it so important to you to include this in the book?
1: Because my publisher told me to. No, you <laughs> just kidding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that. for now. no. <laughs>
1: No. Um, you know, it isn't something that's often talked about. And I think with a permaculture farmer and trying to live in alignment with nature, I really just view myself as a steward. And I I guess I couldn't really find a way to phrase it. But it was just kind of weird when I moved into the place that I live now, which is from 1775. It was a very odd feeling knowing how many people had lived here before me, because I'm from the Midwest where we didn't really have anything this old. And so now to be in New Jersey... And to find all of these old houses and these old farmsteads, it was like, wow, I, I get to be the next one to to run this place. That's kind of cool, you know? And you find all of the old uh, horseshoes and even gravestones buried about. And you, you really feel the history. And so I feel a great sense of pride sort of getting to be the one that gets to steward this land at this particular point in time. But it also makes me very aware of the fact that I won't be doing this forever and it will go on to somebody else. And so, okay, then it becomes, well, what is my place here? For me, obviously anybody that puts down farming roots, it's not going to be a quick few years journey. And then you switch to something else, at least most of the time for most people, it's sort of a, uh, a long haul. And so I do plan on doing this for a very long time, but I, it changes my outlook. I have a nut allergy. I'm still planting nut trees because it's not really about me. It's about, creating a landscape that's not just going to feed me and my family, it's going to feed people for years to come. And knowing that, yeah, I'm fostering this land now, but I won't be forever somebody else's takes a lot of the selfishness out of it. Uh, of course, I do things that I, I plant things I think are beautiful. You know, I, I have certain roses or whatever that that um, I choose because I just like the way they look or the way that they smell. But my own personal taste does not dictate everything that I do here. It's, It's more about okay, just what's my role on this on this planet on this little site? And, and what do I want to leave behind and leave better? And that's really what that chapter is is sort of trying to encapsulate is thinking about what you're planting? and Why are you planting it? Are you doing it just for you? Is it going to be is it going to be beneficial for someone else in the long run? Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think
0: I think that's beautifully said. Thank you. And it kind of rolls into the the next question I had for you, which was just talking about, you know, the fact that your book is called The Sustainable Homestead. And, and what you said about the fact that we're very temporary, but the things we do on this land now, planting orchards, nut trees, fruit trees, even the things people will never see. So how we care for the soil and what we build up in the soil versus the things that, you know, we're hopefully omitting and not putting onto the land as well. You know what does that look like for you personally as as you think about this land and envision it after you're gone uh, what What do you hope that looks like once you're not here anymore?
1: I mean, I really want it to be lush and full of fruit trees. I have started working more on an emphasis of perennials rather than annual gardens, so of course, we love our tomatoes and our bell peppers, but I'm planting broccoli and cauliflower that come back every single year. There's perennial tomatillos. There's things we don't even know about because they're not necessarily a shelf staple as annual crops. And so we don't see them at the grocery store. So I, I've had to do a lot of research and digging as to, okay, what's a, what's a, what's a perennial substitute. And in creating these perennial food forests, my hope is that the next owner wouldn't come in and just absolutely annihilate everything that I've done and mow it down but they would actually be able to still walk through the the, the mulch trail and and pick the berries, you know, and, and harvest some herbs and that the trees are going to, you know, at some point start absorbing more carbon dioxide than what we're emitting as a farm. And it's really just about making sure the people that live here next are taken care of.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think your book does a really good job of outlining that for people that if they're interested in starting this journey or if they're already even on the journey and just looking to make their efforts more sustainable you know not only for themselves but to make it more far-reaching for those who come after us on the land um you know i turned 40 later this year and it's something i just think about more and more is like well what happens after me what comes next right. and the idea that i don't want all my work to have been for not, I want someone else to benefit from it down the road, even if it's a total stranger. Um, So just thank you for such a beautiful book. I've really enjoyed it. And I think people are going to just get, you know, so much from it. Um, It really dives into some things I'm not seeing covered or talked about anywhere else. And I think they're really important conversations for us to be having.
1: Oh, that's so sweet. That gives me chills. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, And one final question to end, I just (laughs) like to ask people is, What's something, you know, new to your farm? You know, you talk about planting things for yourself that you think are beautiful. Is there anything new you're growing this year um, that you haven't grown before that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, so I think it's, uh, I think it's called Yuzo or Yuzco Lemon. Um, I'm forgetting the exact word, but I, with with a passion for perennials, I've opened the door to potentially cold hardy citrus for my zone seven. And I didn't know there was such a thing.
0: Wow. Yeah. I
1: started diving in and yeah, you know, I grow like potted orange trees and olives and I bring them in, in the, in the wintertime, but I'm talking about something that can actually stay in the ground and continue to grow year after year. Well, there's this Japanese lemon that will thrive here called a yuzo. And you know, that, that, that segues real quick into another notation. One thing, obviously, with permaculture farming is anytime that we can find a native plant for something, we would want to use that. Right. But if there's not a native option and you know something's not going to be invasive and spread and cause an issue, I personally, for one, have no shame in planting something like a jam- Japanese lemon. I know not that that's controversial either. for some people, but I just personally don't Right. different strokes for different folks. But there's a blood orange I learned I could grow here. And so now I just feel like it's the addiction talking. Right
0: <laughs> now, just a few more plants.
1: <laughs> just a few more plants. Yeah, so that's something I'm really excited about this year.
0: That is exciting. I want to look into that as well because we're at high altitude, and so yeah, learning it's a whole new ball game here for what kind of citrus and and stuff we can have. I've farmed in Florida and then Tennessee, and now high altitude Colorado. Very oh different, God. very different vibe. But
1: so, what growing cool. zone are you now?
0: So I don't even know because we. The nearest town to us is about a 3,000 foot elevation decrease. And so even just like looking at weather apps and stuff just isn't useful. And so kind of what you were talking about with like phenology, and I'm going to have to be tapping into some other less scientific sources, I think, here and just really learning the land and for what the land wants and and what that cycle is going to look like, because any sort of app or almanac, I think, isn't really going to be relevant here. so.
1: So interesting. Wow. So you have a whole new adventure. You said you moved there just a few months ago?
0: Middle of October weeks before the first snow and so we've got three and a half feet of snow outside and my internal clock is used to farming in Tennessee and is very much telling me I am super behind because I have nothing planted or started and then I look outside and go you're fine
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's gonna take a little bit of a shift isn't it
0: most definitely but I'm excited about the journey and and learning you know kind of what we talked about with your book learning how to make things work for myself with what I have here on the land. It'll, it'll be an adventure. So,
1: yeah, no, that's good. That's fun.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Angela. I really appreciate your time. Um, thank you for chatting with us and coming on the show.
1: Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Thanks.
0: All right. I hope you got a lot out of my chat with Angela and that you will check out her book, the sustainable homestead. Also make sure to go give her a follow on social media over at axe and root homestead we'll have those links in the show notes as usual and don't forget to use the code i mentioned spring 10 if you go over to the fox and elder shop and you'll get 10 percent off of your order including all of our new spring herbal products i hope everyone is doing well out there and that your seedlings are healthy and happy until next time keep your hands dirty and your heart open